Well, I am not speaking this morning, uh, as you sort of know our tradition. Uh, I said we do this, this is our second year of doing it, and it's honestly become one of my sort of favorite opportunities for us as a church. Uh, I call it our Emmanuel series, which if you know the word, it means God with us, our Emmanuel. I wanted to read um, real quick as I sort of set the series up from Matthew chapter 1, and you'll obviously hear the connection, but this is when the angel Gabriel has shown up to Joseph to talk about the coming birth of Christ, and this is Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, to take, I said I wasn't speaking today, but I have a pulpit, so you got to give me at least two or three minutes. So, exactly, yeah, to, to sort of set up where we're going with this. Uh, my heart as a pastor is to try in, in all sorts of ways to give voice to what I see and what I know is happening in people's lives in the congregation. One of the sort of temptations we too often fall into is it's easy to think that when you come to church on Sunday mornings, what matters most is what the church is doing and what the church's values are and the church's programs and. You listen to me speak each week, and you inevitably learn about my passions and my ideas about the future for the church. And one of the risks is you sort of shed who you are as an individual and assume that when you come in here, you're now a volunteer or a member or somehow required for certain projects or certain tasks that you've been given responsibilities. You come to church and you turn your interest towards what the church is doing. But the church, I always try to remind us, is nothing more than each of us individually coming together bringing with us what God is doing in each of our individual lives and encouraging and helping one another see what it is God is doing in other lives. We, the people that make up a church, are the church. The passions and interests, the callings, the struggles, the successes, the challenges that each of us face individually is what makes us Bent Oak Church. And so I always love this opportunity each season to hear from people in the church and to begin to hear testimony word of how God has proven himself to be with us as individuals and so by it encouraging and building us up in our faith together. Um, My calling, last thing, really when I think of what a pastor does well, a pastor builds people's lives, these individual callings together into something stronger and by doing that equips each of us to go and live out that calling that God has. So the famous way I had to read from Paul, we've been doing Acts, we left off with Paul in uh, Ephesus. Paul writes later on to the Ephesians, he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers, and he does all of this to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, what we do together is we build upon one another's lives and callings into something stronger together, and we equip each other to be prepared for the ways that God is at work in each of our individual lives. All that's to say, this series is really, in my mind, doing exactly that. We get to know a little bit more about the people that you worship by Sunday after Sunday, the ways in which God has been faithful in their life, and so by it, God builds our hearts and our lives together into stronger unity and encourages us into what he's called us each to individually do. God with us, Emmanuel.
So with that, this morning, uh, the next few weeks, we get to hear from different people. And uh, I'm excited Justice Beaver speaking this week. And I thought, you know, if you know Justice very long, his, his heart for passions and overseas missions. Um, one of the things I respected about Justice and I thought would be a good way to start off is that's a good introduction to the Christmas theme. God is a missionary God, and I know Justice speaks to that almost better than anyone else. So uh, give a big clap and warm welcome, Justice Beaver. (laughs) Well, it's great to see that we had to bring in five extra rows today because there's so many people. Um, Can you guys hear me okay? Well, as Chase already gave away, thanks. Uh, I wanted to talk today about something I'm very passionate about, and that's missions. And I kind of wanted to talk about um, how it started, where I've been, the history of it, where I think God is really pulling me and Kimmy in the future, and then the applications of that today, and then in each of our lives. And then I also wanted to talk about the essence of missions, of something that I think that is really easy to overlook and is easy to miss. And so um, my story, my history of it is that, as many as you know, I've been to uh, Uganda, Ethiopia, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Iraq. I've been to all those countries once, except for Ethiopia. I've been four times, and I'm leading a fifth trip there in May uh, on a medical trip, which is pretty fitting, I think, because it's going to be the last trip that I may ever take there for at least the next decade or two. Um, before I start medical school. Um, And so I'm really happy that I get to actually lead a medical trip. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, near the end. But that's kind of where I've been. And um, the way that that all started is when I was 16 years old, I picked up a book called The Invitation with the subtitle that said, The Not-So-Simple Truth About Following Jesus. And I was never much of a reader at the time. You know, the only book that I'd rather, I really had gone to read was Robinson Crusoe. And uh, that's because it was about a guy living on an island, and that sounded really fun to me. And so I picked up this book, and it was about 150 pages, and for me that was long. Okay, that was a long book, and I read it in a week, and I was like, wow, I'm a scholar. And uh, so I read through this book in a week, and I was left at the end of it, completely sold to give anything that I needed to to God. And that's how good this book was. It completely changed me. And up until this point, I had never really had this desire. I didn't really know the whole point about surrendering your entire life to Jesus. And I was left after that with the total passion to do missions. I didn't know where. I didn't know how. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to go to Central America or South America or Asia or Africa. So somewhere poor that people couldn't pay me back and I'd be able to help. You know, pretty naive, pretty innocent, but it was good heart. After that, I picked up another book uh, called Unveiling Islam. My grandmother gave it to me. This book was like 230 pages, so it was a much longer book. And after reading this, it was written by two brothers that are Muslim converts to Christianity. And I I I put this book down similar to the first book, and I said, wow, okay, that's different. And so I was felt... I felt this total compassion, this total broken heart for the Muslim people of the world. And I was like, okay, I I think I'm supposed to be a missionary to Muslims. So I knew I was supposed to be a missionary. Now I knew I was supposed to be a missionary to Muslims. And as I was fundraising for my first trip to Ethiopia and Uganda, I I was speaking to a man. He was in charge of missions, actually, at this church. And I was trying to fundraise. And... I was talking to him about my heart for missions and my heart for Muslims and that this was going to be the first trip that I was going to take on. And I said, I I really think I'm supposed to be a missionary to Muslims. He said, oh, really? Where at? 
And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, there's Muslims in Europe, there's Muslims in Africa, there's Muslims in Asia, there's Muslims in the Middle East, so where are you called to? And I said, I think the Middle East. And he said, well, why? There's Muslims in all these other places. And I said, well, it doesn't seem like very many Christian missionaries go to the Middle East. And that was just kind of a gut reaction. It turned out it was right. For every one million Muslims in the Middle East, there's one Christian missionary sent to them. So it was pretty astounding, and it was just my gut reaction to say that. And then, again, later on reading, God kind of guiding my reading, I came across a verse in Romans 15.20 that said, Paul, Paul writes, I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel where it has not yet been proclaimed. And to me, that spoke to the Middle East, because the Middle East, there's more Muslims in Asia than there are in the Middle East, but the Middle East is the heart of Islam. And so I knew that that was where God was calling me. This is several years in the future. Uh, once I'm a doctor, this is several years away, maybe two, three decades. I don't know when. I just know that eventually Kimmy and I will be going there. And so I kind of wanted to tell you about how all of that really started to change in my heart. And it would be fitting that I would actually talk about the book, The Invitation, because this is ultimately what changed my life. This book changed my life completely, and it set me on this path to go on all these different mission trips and go to all these countries with the goal of eventually moving there full time. And one of the things that caught me off guard when I was reading this book, The Invitation, which is written by a guy named Greg Sitters, was his breakdown of the analysis that we tend to separate people who follow Christ into several different groups. We, we think of minimum requirement Christians and we think of maximum requirement Christians. And the minimum requirement Christians are the people that try to get into heaven just by the skin of their teeth. They're the people that believe they're the people that have the faith, but they're not so good at following the rules. And the maximum ones are the ones that we think of going, you know, being willing to be martyred. They're the ones that go to the Middle East and all that. And after all, we think of minimum requirements as a fact in the Bible. Uh, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him will be saved. Then again, in John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Then later in John 6.47, it says, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. So we look at this as a minimum requirement. You have to believe. <clears throat> but as Sitters points out, Jesus also says later in John 8, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. And so it calls into question, why do we separate these people, disciples that are these ultra-Christians, and Christians that are these lesser Christians? And he points out an amazing thing. The term Christian, to describe people that follow Christ, is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Whereas the word disciple, to describe people that follow Christ, is used over 330 times. And the word Christian wasn't even introduced until after Christ's resurrection. So that leaves the question, well, what did they call people that followed Christ before he died? Well, they called them disciples. And so the 12 disciples, we think of them, they were in the same group as all the other disciples that are said that follow Jesus around, the women and all of them. And so, for Greg Sitters, he didn't buy into this ideology that there's these minimum requirement Christians and these ultra-obedient disciples. He put them in the same group. And that, for me, was life-shattering because I had never really thought about that. I thought about people that could be very obedient, and of course they're going to go to heaven because they're obedient, maybe even if their faith is a little shaky. But then you think about these people, and they're very faithful, they truly believe, but they're not so good at being obedient. Well, God says that you just have to believe, right? And so for me, that was the biggest thing that changed my life, was this idea of you have to merge these two to show the authenticity of your faith. And that's what Greg Sitter says. He says, how do we know if we're a disciple today, if we fit the criteria of being a disciple today in the same way that they did back then? 
by looking at your belief or faith to see if it bears the mark of authenticity, which is obedience. Now he's quick to point out that uh, obedience doesn't save. Faith does save. But he quotes the reformers by saying, the faith that saves is never alone. This is similar to what James says in that your uh, faith without works is dead. So then I was then challenged, okay, I need to be obedient. So what does obedience look like while being faithful? And that's where Greg Sitters takes in the book this passage. Many of you will know it. There's these three people that come up to Jesus consecutively. And the first one says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What Jesus was really saying was, are you willing to be homeless, rootless, mobile, constantly on the go? Apparently this guy wasn't because we never hear from him again. Then another guy says, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Now, most commentators agree that this guy's dad wasn't yet dead, but that he was just trying to get everything in order before he went to, to follow Jesus. So essentially what this guy was saying was, Lord, you can be Lord of everything except for my timetable. I get, to, I get to control that. And what's interesting, as Greg Sitters points out, is that nowhere in the entire Gospels does Jesus wait on anybody. He doesn't wait on anybody. He doesn't say, okay, you go do what you need to do and then come back and follow. You know, he says, you follow me now. Another person comes up and says, Jesus, I will follow you. And, uh, but first, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no, no. Nobody who puts their head to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is if you're going to hesitate, don't bother. Don't bother. If you're going to regret this, don't bother. I want you to come now. You see, it's not that these people didn't really want to follow Jesus. They did. They just wanted to do it sitting down. They wanted to do it their own way. Jesus doesn't tell us to sit down. He tells us to go. And for many, that's where the end of the story is. Many people follow Jesus and the Bible tells us, the Gospels tell us that they follow Jesus only to turn back and go back to where he was. And ultimately, The test of a true disciple, the test of somebody who actually follows Christ, is the person that can answer this question honestly and in the right way. What do you want more? What Jesus offers you or what you have to leave behind to get it? That's the question. Now, moving on from this, the next part that I realized was, okay, I want to do missions. I want to be obedient to God, just the the same way that Jesus is telling these people, follow me, go. Well, who do I go to? Where do I go? Because that was something I discovered months after reading this book, The Invitation. And so for me, I recognized the strong desire to go to Muslims, to go to the Islamic world. After all, that does make sense. Paul was called to the Gentiles. Peter was called to the Jews. It makes sense to think that there are certain specific people groups that certain Christians or disciples are called to minister to. And the more that I've grown up, the more I actually start looking at this as physicians, You know, we have all different types of physicians. We have general practitioners, we have family practice doctors, we have pediatric intensivists, we have general surgeons and neurosurgeons, and we have pediatricians, and all of them do very different things. All of them treat patients, but they all treat very different kinds of patients. Some of them are very general and very broad, and some of them are ultra-specific and only treat one type of patient with one type of disease. And that's kind of how I look at missions. And it's up to each person to discover, well, are they supposed to be super specialized or a little more general? You know, the person that's maybe being a missionary in Detroit may be a little more general than the person that has to give up everything and go to the Amazon rainforest 
to minister to a tribe that doesn't even know English and that you don't even know what language they speak. That's, of course, a little different, but it doesn't mean that they're not helping people. It doesn't mean that they're not being a good physician. And so the question that then gets raised is, who are you called to? Are you more of a general person? Are you a very specific person? And are you being faithful to that calling? That was the question that was raised to me. Is I'm called to the Muslim world, but I'm not called now. I'm not called to go now. I haven't yet been. I'm called to the people of Springfield right now, the people that I work with, the people that I went to school with, the people that I bump into at Walmart. And that was something that really challenged me after my first couple of trips overseas was it's all fine and dandy to be this great ultra-Christian that's really loving overseas, but if that stops when I get over here, I'm kind of missing the whole point. I'm kind of missing the whole point of being a disciple of Christ if I don't take the people I'm around every day just as serious as the people that I fly a couple thousand miles to see for a week. And that, for me, was what really challenged me. Which leads us to the third point, and this is the least fun thing to talk about. Um, What is it that is your greatest weakness or weaknesses in somebody being able to identify you as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Christ? Now, I'm not asking any of you to say, but I'll tell you. Why, Why not? I have actually started to realize this the more the longer I've been married, which is really embarrassing. It's very unfortunate. But I think that if there's a couple of things that somebody would be surprised to find out that I was a Christian, it would be because of these things. I am not the most encouraging person. I'm not the most complimentary person. I'm not the most overtly kind, nice, over-the-top person, like you think of Glow and Cindy my mom and Kimmy. It's annoying, right? <laughs> they're so nice, and it's not like it's not like they're nice and it's fake. No, they're actually being nice, and I'm not like that. And instead, I'm sarcastic, and sometimes I'm a little too blunt or quiet. And so, when you partner these two things of not being very encouraging or complimentary, and sometimes being a little too sarcastic, I think that that's what gets me in trouble. Of making it difficult to identify me as a follower of Christ. And it's quite an indictment on me because I've actually known, this is really embarrassing, I've known several people that have been like, Justice, I didn't know about you at first. I like you now, though. That's, it's funny, but it stings. Because how, how is it good for me that I had to force these people to be around me for them to start to like me? That shows me that that's really a big weakness because for a lot of people, you only have one shot. And for a lot of people that were around Jesus, they only had one shot. And so that, for me, was the biggest thing that I'm trying to overcome now, is how do I change my heart in recognizing the weaknesses that I have that makes it difficult for people to identify you as a disciple of Christ? And that's what I'm posing to you, is what is it for you? Now, all of this might be saying, okay, okay, I get what you're saying, But possibly the greatest hindrance of living an everyday life of missions is that many of us don't really understand how it applies to today. How missions is at the center of what we celebrate at Christmas. And you know, we assume that God calls missionaries and the rest of us get to really do what we can when we can. But missions is a lot more central to our faith. And that's why I wanted to go through those three points before I started, because those are three things that I think everybody who sincerely wants to follow, obey, and be faithful to Christ, has to follow. 
So having said that, we'll actually get on to the reading of the day. It's in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be reading verse 35, and we're actually going to be reading through chapter 5, verse 20. So it's it's somewhat long, but it's good. Um, I'll let you guys get there. So chapter 4, verse 35. On that day... When evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across the other side. This would have been the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gesserines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he often had been bound with shackles and changed. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly to not send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering around 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what, what was happening. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he didn't permit him to do it. And he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him. And everyone marveled. I'm sure many of you are saying, okay, not really sure how this is Christmas. And I'm not really sure what this has to do with missions except for the very end where he sends the guy back. But even that, how is that missions? Because he's just in the region that he was already living in. So... Here's what's significant to me about this story. This is one of my favorite stories, and I think this story perfectly shows the essence of what missions is about. Jesus was in the region of Galilee, and he tells all of his disciples, and we know that it wasn't just the 12 because there were several other boats with him, get in your boat and let's go to the other side. He would have given them a destination because he went to go and sleep. Immediately, these disciples probably would have been a little hesitant because the region that they were going to, as we will then find out, is a Gentile region. It's a Gentile region because it's near the Decapolis, which is purely Hellenistic, 
Gentile area, and it's surrounded by pigs, which is a no-no for Jewish culture, as all of you know. So they probably would have been hesitant to begin with, but they hit one of the two criteria of obedience, and they went in. Then, as the story goes, this storm goes up, and Jesus calms the storm, and the people were afraid, and so it shows that they needed to really fix their faith, because they were still doubting. And then, what's amazing is they get to this region, and they land among the tombs. We know that they land among the tombs, because the guy that comes out, who's crazy, lives among the tombs, and he immediately greets them. So this guy comes and is talking to Jesus, and apparently Jesus had been telling these demons to leave this man, but they weren't listening. And I want to focus on this guy just a little bit to give you a clearer picture of what he probably was like, knowing what we know now about psychology and psychiatry and all of that. We know that he's demon-possessed, and that's his biggest problem for sure. But we also know several other things about this guy. Number one, he would have been incredibly anxious. He's screaming out at night. We know that he would have been delusionally depressed because he's cutting his wrist, which would also make him suicidal. He doesn't want to live. We also know that he has some other psycho, uh, psychogenic things that are wrong with him because he's sitting there naked. And the isolation of living among tombs would have made you go crazy in and of itself. So this guy, living completely alone, naked, crying out day and night, having no ability to be subdued by anybody, he's living there, and he's the one that Jesus first sees. That's pretty amazing. So, next thing comes to next, Jesus casts the demon out, and the demons go into the pigs, further evidence that this is in a region that Jews do not go to. The pigs go drown, and the guys that see it, the guys that are tending to the herd, go and get people from the surrounding cities and the surrounding towns. Now, the Decapolis actually had ten cities that were all kind of around each other, and they must have been close by because the people get there the same day that Jesus heals this guy. So, the people come out, and this guy would have been the guy that you whisper about, but nobody really talks about, right? This is the guy that you hear crying like a wolf at night, the guy that you don't go around because he could kill you, the guy that runs around naked among the tombs. This would be like that guy the crazy guy that you kind of hear stories about. You don't know if they're all true, but okay. So these guys come out to him, and they see this guy sitting clothed and in his right mind, right next to Jesus, probably worshiping Jesus because it says that he, wanted to, he was clinging to Jesus when Jesus left. <clears throat> so the most amazing thing happens. They all know this guy. They all see what happens, that he's healed, and they ask the guy that healed him to leave. That part always puzzled me. But it didn't puzzle me as much as what happens next, which is that Jesus does leave. He does. He gets right back in his boat, and he, grow, he goes back across the sea where he just came from. Did you catch that? It's very subtle. God himself came to earth, crossed a sea, landed on a tomb, making himself unclean by his own law, around pigs and other tombs, he healed one crazy, psychologically disturbed, anxious, depressed, naked, demon-possessed man. When there was other towns around him, he could have gone to those towns. There certainly would have been people there that needed healing. He could have healed them. He could have captivated them with his parables and teachings and possibly converted all ten of these cities. But he went to this guy healed this guy, and when the town came out and asked him to leave, he did. 
That is the whole point of missions. That's the whole point. That's what it's all about. It's not about going and changing the masses. It's not about the cool pictures you can post on Instagram. It's not about how much people will praise you for where you go. Jesus would not have been praised by a single person in his culture for that day. It would have been like our pastor going to a strip club to minister, which I'm not saying he has. That's the stigma. (laughs) That's the stigma that would have been attributed to Jesus. Nobody would have thought that this is a cool thing. To go to these tombs, to this crazy guy that's a Gentile around pigs. But Jesus went. He didn't care. He went, he healed him, and then he left. And that's the whole point of that's the whole point of missions. And that's what I love about missions. And I think that C.S. Lewis sums it up perfectly. Lewis says, He died not for men, but for each man. And if each man had been the only man, he would have done no less. What Lewis is saying is if this crazy demon-possessed man had been the only man on earth in need of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, Jesus still would have been born of a virgin in a manger and died on the cross. He would have done it all the same. And what's amazing is that in this story, I am that guy. I'm that guy. You're that guy. And Jesus wants to make us into Jesus. Jesus is saying to us, you're this guy. He's saying to his disciples, this is you. This could have been you. But I'm going to make you like me. When he calls Peter the rock, Peter wasn't a rock. He was a coward. So he wasn't saying you're a rock now. He's saying, I'm going to make you into a rock. Again, you might be thinking this is a really strange story for Christmas. But what I wanted to say was that this is the whole point of Christmas. The whole point of Christmas is Christ doing a missionary work for each of us. God isn't asking us to make any sacrifice that he hasn't already made. And I think that every Christian, every Christ follower should recognize their calling to missions because we're the ones that get to benefit, we're the ones that get saved by Christ's mission work. So I wanted to follow up with some more questions and then... I thought it'd be fitting if I actually encouraged you guys. Uh, so the first one, the first question is, are you a true disciple? Do you have the faith to believe and are you obedient to the calling of Christ? Are you sitting around waiting for him or are you going where he tells you to go? Second, who are you called to? Is it a very specific group? And is there any way that you've been ignoring that calling? Is there any way that you've been called to St. Louis or Detroit or Los Angeles and you've been ignoring it? Or even maybe more difficult, going to Bangladesh? Is there any way that you've been called to that and you've been ignoring those people? Fifth, or sorry, third, what is your greatest weakness or weaknesses in demonstrating to others that you are a disciple of Christ and thus in being an effective missionary? Those are the questions that I have to ask myself daily. Am I being faithful to the people I work with at the hospital? Those are who I'm called to right now. Am I being faithful to try to encourage the people I go to church with? You know, Paul talks regularly. I just finished 2 Corinthians. He talks regularly about building people up. Are you doing that to the people that God has put in your life? Now, as I'm going to tell you, I think that you are. So I wanted to read you the lyrics of this song. I was going to sing it 
but I didn't want to make Barry insecure. So uh, the book, the, the song is called Thank You. It's a very old song. My mom loves it. It's, uh, I'm just going to read you a part of it. It starts, I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man, and he was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now. Then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start, and one week when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, remember the time. A missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came, far as the eye could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done and sacrifices made, unnoticed on the earth, in heaven now proclaimed. This perfectly summarizes what I think of each of you. This is how I view each of you. Because every week I come to this church and I see the people encouraging my wife and encouraging me and being kind to me. I see you guys supporting us and asking us. Every week, you guys come up and say, hey, how's, school, how's the school hunt going? You go up and ask Kimmy, how's, how's the wedding planning going? You guys genuinely want to know. You're not just being nice. You care. And so when I say, what are the little things that you're doing? I see you doing them. And the whole point of me talking today was just to see if we could all try to do them a little better. I, I told you before that, you know, I'm leading another trip to Ethiopia. And this church has already been so generous in helping us. And what's amazing is I don't feel uncomfortable asking for more help. This is going to be the last trip that Kimmy and I take, and I don't feel uncomfortable asking for a help for a third time, as you guys have already helped us twice. And that's really the biggest compliment that I can give each of you, because asking for money and asking for support is a really uncomfortable thing to do, and I don't feel that asking for you guys. I would love your support, and I know that you don't care at all, and you want to give it. And so, that's th- by the way, that's three compliments. Okay, so I'm good for the month, okay? (laughs) So I just wanted to finish that by saying I think that you guys are amazing, and I'm so, so thankful to be at this church. Um, And I'm so grateful for what I learned from each of you and how I I see you interacting with other people because I learn from, I, I watch it. I watch how kind the members of this church are to one another and to other people. So, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made on that cross, for turning in your heavenly crown and trading it for a manger and ultimately a crown of thorns. Thank you for the mission work that you did for each of us and knowing that if I was the only person in the world that needed you to come, you would still come. You'd still bear that burden. You'd still 
bear that pain and that sacrifice for me. And I pray, Lord, that you would put it on each of our hearts to take that with us each day for the people that we work with, the people that we're around every day, or the people that we just bump into at Walmart for somewhat meaningless conversations, meaningless interactions, but that we would take in with our heart this desire to be your hands and feet, that we would work against the things that get in the way of that, and that we would constantly recognize our need to be obedient and faithful at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen.